So when you think about money, what's the primary emotion that you attach to money? In conversations about money, in, uh, in, in looking at your bills, in, 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 in issues of money, what's the primary emotion that you attach to money? In a few days, I will be heading down uh, to the Florida Everglades uh, and, uh, and, and participating in uh, my own kind of personal uh, fifth annual python hunt. And I do this uh, because I care about our eco you know, ecological system and I want to rid uh, the Everglades of the invasive Burmese python. Uh, and I haven't seen any yet in the, in the, in the previous years, not seen a one. Uh, so I'm more of a scare tactic person, you know, scare them away uh, rather than capture them, I guess. But uh, the first year I went down, I, I went by myself. I, I, for whatever reason, uh, couldn't convince anyone to go with me. It didn't seem to make sense. So I go down uh, by myself, and I, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I had pictures of sitting around the campfire at night, you know, reading a book, just enjoying uh, the, the great outdoors. Uh, by day, you know, wrangling all the pythons in the Everglades, and then, and then again, uh, relaxing around the campfire. And, and I just didn't know what I was getting into. I, I ended up uh, in this basic, basically it was a gauntlet of alligators. And I should have known uh, that it was gonna be bad because the place I started was called Alligator Alley, but I just had no idea. And I paddle for miles in my kayak in this just cesspool of alligators. They're just everywhere. And, uh, and I'm getting further and further and further from people, further and further and further from civilization, and deeper and deeper and deeper into uh, gator-rich uh, territory. And the second night, of this uh, adventure, uh, I, had, I had moved my campsite because uh, I was accidentally bothering a ginormous uh, male alligator that had let me know he didn't want me to be there. Uh, so I move, I move campsites, uh, and he follows me actually. Uh, and so he's just kind of patrolling uh, the water by my campsite. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I'm sitting there, and uh, uh, I'm getting ready for the, my final night of camping there. And it's kind of open. I've got basically water all around me, and and there's just gators everywhere. I mean, there's always seeing them all the time, always hearing them, all of that. And as the darkness kind of descended, as the darkness crept closer to my campfire, I sat there and I sat there with my back against my kayak and, uh, and the small fire in front of me, my book uh, unopened next to me. And I just peered into the darkness, just staring into the darkness, watching the darkness get closer and closer, listening to all these uh, sounds of gators feeding, of gators, uh, you know, bothering other gators. I mean, it was just, all around me. And I sat there and sat there and sat there just peering into the darkness. And then when, when I couldn't do that anymore, the fire had gone out, the mosquitoes uh, had gotten too bad, I climbed uh, into my hammock, wrapped myself up in that, uh, and in the little bits of sleep uh, that I got that night when I wasn't listening um, to the continue, you know, continuing cacophony of gator noises, in the little bits of sleep I got, I just had dreams that I was like this giant burrito uh, just waiting uh, to be eaten. And I didn't want to admit it then, and I actually hate uh, to admit it now, but in that situation, I was a little bit worried. I wouldn't say I was scared, I wouldn't say I was terrified, uh, but I was certainly, because I'm very in touch with my emotional side, a little <laughs> bit worried. And that isn't the only time where I have felt that level of worry. There's been times in my life uh, when, it, when, it, when it relates to money, when it relates to finances, where I have felt every bit of that concern every bit of feeling like there's ominous threats just outside my, my line of sight, waiting to take me out. Questions like, can I pay for college? Will I have enough to pay off my student loans? Will I be able to have a job 
when I get out? Will I be able to have a place to live? Do I have enough money for now? Do I have enough for the future? Is it safe enough? Will it last? Will I be able to keep my job? Will I be able to get that job? Will I be able to get a raise? Can I afford this or that? All those questions can build worry in us. Last week after one of the services, I had a conversation with a gentleman who's you know, near retirement. And, uh, and he sat down and he said, I, I feel like when it comes to those questions about money, I've gotten the answers right. But tomorrow I'm meeting uh, with my stockbroker, and, and it's not going to be good news. He said, I'm worried about it. I'm worried about that meeting. I'm worried about my future. And I get it. There was a time in Brandy in my life where uh, I, it was really myself. Uh, I'd gotten us, I'd led us into a place where we were just in a tough spot financially. Our bills had gotten out of control. Our spending uh, had not gotten in control. We hadn't adjusted well uh, from having two incomes, no kids, uh, to one income, a ton of kids. And, uh, and it was just, and it was, it was, I was so worried. I would sit there and I would look at my bills and I'd go through my bills and I'd see every one of those bills as if it were a toothed monster just sit, sitting in the dark shadow around our financial world, just waiting to take a bite out of me. I'd go to sleep at night worried about what would happen. I know what it's like to have worry when it comes to money. Last week, in this first week of the series, in the first week in the conversation about money, we looked at the four core questions about money. Because we're trying to understand uh, where, where money can, be, uh, can, can lead to misplaced devotion and, uh, and, and, uh, and also understand how money can help us be devoted to God. So last week was the bad news. We looked at the core questions about money, the, kind of the questions that reveal our devotion. Those questions are, whose is it? What can it do for me? What can't it do for me? And what does it say about me? Last week, we looked at the bad news. This week, we get to look at the good news. And we're going to begin looking at the good news by, by using uh, the, the continuation of the passage that we spoke from last week as our leaping off point. If you remember, we were, uh, we're in Luke chapter 12. Uh, Jesus had just been uh, addressing uh, someone's problem, a money problem that they had. And he kind of played forward for them the scenario of where, of where they were going with their question. And then he draws his attention out from that individual circumstance, and he addresses the people around him, his disciples. I'm going to be reading in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. You know why Jesus, asked, or you know why Jesus told those folks not to worry? Because he knew them just like he knows us. He knows that we're excellent worriers, that we can worry about so many things. And we can especially worry about our provision, worry about our money, worry about if we'll have enough, what we'll do with it. And we may not wear our worry on the outside. We may bury it deep inside, but we're all really good at worrying. And it's important as we get into this text to really understand the tone of the text. Because when you hear, don't worry, it can mean a lot of different things. If Brandy calls me while I'm at work, and she says to me, I'm having a really tough day. It's been tough all day. The kids uh, aren't moving through school very well. You know, we're having a hard time getting all of our homework done, 
feel like the house is a disaster, so-and-so is picking at so-and-so all day and I'm having to manage them, and I can't, I can't even think straight. I went uh, into the closet uh, just to try to think one thought from beginning to end. And the kids with their weird spidey sense uh, for knowing when I want to be alone lined up outside the closet and are like, when are you going to be done? What are you doing in there? And, she's, and it's just been a really tough day. And I respond to her, don't worry about it. That can mean a really good thing and that can mean a really bad thing. If I say, if what I mean in saying don't worry about it is your problem is not big enough for me to worry about, so the best thing that I can think of to say to you is don't worry about it, that's the wrong answer. If I say, don't worry about it because I can't figure out how to fix your problem, I don't know what to do about it, it's too big for me, so all, all I can do is try to politely say, don't worry about it, that's the wrong answer. But if I say to her, don't worry about it, don't worry about it because you're not alone in this. I'm going to close up shop early, I'm going to come home, I'll take over the kids, I'll finish the science project. I'll do a horrible job of making dinner, but I promise I'll clean up afterwards. I'll get the kids ready for bed. Maybe we'll go for a walk, read a story. They'll go to bed. We'll relax. We'll get a good night's sleep, and we'll, and we'll be together in the next day as well. The tone of those words, don't worry about it, really matters. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying, do not worry about your life, is he's saying, you don't have to worry. You're not alone in this. I'm with you in this. He goes on to explain himself. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to, her li to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the wildflowers and how they grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Don't set your heart on what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here Jesus is telling a bunch of worried people, don't worry. But knowing we shouldn't worry and not worrying are two different things. And some of, I, I know some of you, because you're like me, and just hearing don't worry just makes you more worried about how worried you are. And it can be a debilitating thing. The fix for worry is not simply willing yourself into not worrying. Nor is the solution to financial worry found in fixing what worries us financially. The solution to worry is to bring it to Jesus, to trust that we don't bear our burdens alone. Ultimately, the solution to worry is to be devoted to God, a God who's much bigger than any of our problems. When we get our devotion properly aligned, then we begin to discover the right answers to those core questions about money. Whose is it? It's God's. 
It's all God's. Even in this text, when, when he's encouraging people not to worry, he's saying, I've got it all. The world, the birds of the air, the grass in the field, it's all mine and I care for it. It's all God's and we're the stewards. Our lives, our families, God's work in this world, our money, it's all God's. And we're the stewards. The ownership is his and we have the privilege of stewarding a portion of it. Getting the ownership question right is paramount in understanding all the other questions and getting the rest of it right. You can do a lot of right things financially, but if you don't, if you don't get that part right, if you don't see what you have as something that God has given you to steward but is ultimately his, then you miss the biggest part. And you might be wondering, man, if I do that, if I say it's all God's, if I, if, if I release control, let him lead in my financial world, what's he going to do? Is he going to ask me to give it all away, to sell off all my possessions? Is he going to ask me to do something like that? And I want to say to you, with great confidence, I can assure you that he might. But not because he's a thief. If God wanted to rob you, he doesn't need your permission to do that. If he asks you to cash out, if he asks you to give it all away, if he asks you to risk, he'll do it because he has something so much better for you. Maybe he has something he wants you to throw your life into, your possessions, your whatever. Maybe it'll take you in a place you never expected, ask of you things uh, that you never expected to give. He wants you to be a part of something that you never imagined you could be a part of. And it'll change your life and it'll change the lives of people around you. There are people who did that for this place, who put it all on the line, who cashed out and said, I will do this because I believe what God can do in this church. We get to be a part of this place in part because of what they did. Or maybe he'll ask you to release control, to give it all up, because he knows the power it has on you. He knows the hold that it has in your life, and he knows that there's no way you're going to manage yourself into right answers to those questions. You've been living in the wrong answers for too long, and you need to do something radical, something bold, something scary to break free. A few years ago, I met with a young man uh, who, who came in for a pastoral care meeting, and he sat down, and he just, he told me all about this horrible addiction he had to internet pornography. And he outlined all of the ways it was messing up his life, all the ways that it was destroying his relationships, all the ways that it was crushing him spiritually, all of the ways he lived in fear, all, all of, all of that, that was messing up in his life. And I sat there and I listened to him just unload about, uh, about how much had gone wrong in his life because of this. And I suggested to him, as a part of taking action, I said, maybe you need to get rid of your computer for a while. And his first response was, no, I can't do that. I need it for school. And I wanted to shake him and be like, are you kidding? You just told me how... how bad the grip of this is on your life. Wouldn't it be worth it? Take a semester off if you need to. Wouldn't it be worth it to, to do something radical and bold and scary to break the bondage of this? You're not going to manage your way into right action with this. It might be the same for you financially. You might need to let go of the status symbols. You might need to let go of the security. You might need to, God might ask that of you. But he won't do it because he doesn't care about you. He, he'll do it because he has so much more for you than what that has to offer. 
When we talk about God's ownership, we're not just talking about, uh, about what we give. We're talking about all of it. We're talking about every line item in our budget. What would it look like if we lived our lives as if every penny that we had were, was God's first and we were stewards of it? How do we think differently about money? How do we spend differently? How much more opportunity would we have to be grateful if we held what we had with open hands? Getting the ownership question right has tremendous power to free us. And then the question, what can it do for me? That question becomes a lot more like, what can it do for God? It can be a means for God to provide for my needs. Food, clothing, shelter. It can be a blessing from God to be enjoyed, but not worshipped. It can be a tool to be used to make a difference in this world, to invest in kingdom work. You know, Jesus never told anyone to destroy their money. He never, he never declared money useless. He just never said, you know, go burn it all up, partly because they didn't have paper money, so you'd have just ended up with really hot coins, uh, and that would have been weird. <laughs> Instead, he gave them a bigger picture of what it was that they could do with their, with their wealth. He gave them a big picture of what they could invest in in kingdom work. What can't it do for me? All those things that were in the can-do column last week and the wrong answers, those move down to the what can't it do for me. It can't protect me, can't make me self-sufficient, can't make me comfortable, can't keep me happy. In addition to that, it can't fix my worry. Chances are if you're worried about money now, having more of it isn't going to make you less worried. More money, more problems, in the words of my friend Mr. Big. A few weeks ago when that lottery was like over a billion dollars, I got home from work and Brandy was like, do you think we should buy a lottery ticket? And I thought it was really funny because I was like, well, you know, tens of millions of dollars, that's nothing. But I guess hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe, maybe it's worth buying a ticket. And I, th I thought she was joking, but I was walking out the door to, to go visit a friend and I was like, were you serious about that lottery ticket thing? And she's like, no, are you kidding? That kind of money would destroy our lives. And I really love our life, which was great. I was very happy uh, to hear that she loves our life. If we have problems and worries now, having more money won't necessarily fix those problems. It'll just change the circumstances. Also, in the answer to the question, what can't money do for me? It can't fulfill my life. Our souls know that we were made for more than what money can provide. And we shouldn't limit our existence to the boundaries of what money can do. And in answer to the question, what does it say about me? Only what I allow it to. Money's just a thing. It's not good, it's not bad, it's a powerful thing, but it only has the power we give it. If we give it the power of our identity, we miss out big time. If we have our devotion aligned to God, then money remains just a thing. It doesn't become our identity. Now getting those answers right and living well in the reality of those answers is a process. You can know the right answer and live the right answer. And there's some really practical things that you can do to begin living the right answers so that more and more over time you can believe them and you can align your devotion to God. First, acknowledge ownership. Again, remember, getting the ownership question right is paramount in getting the rest of it right. Before you do anything right with money, you have to understand whose money it is. You have to acknowledge that it's all God's, everything that he's blessed you with. You have to get that part right. Next, reject guilt and shame. 
If you have a lot of money, don't, you, you should not feel that weird Christian guilt about having a lot. After all, it's not yours. Remember, if you get the ownership part right, then the rest of it follows. You can't feel guilty about something that's not yours. You ought to feel responsible, but you shouldn't feel guilty. Maybe you feel shame. Maybe you feel shame about not having enough. Maybe you feel shame because you're in a position that you just you got yourself into. You've mismanaged your financial world. You've done things wrong, and you know it. But you don't know how to stop because you're hiding in your shame. That's where I was a few years ago in that financial crisis with Brandy. I was hiding in my shame. And it wasn't until I was willing to reject shame that we're beginning, that we were able to begin to see hope in the process. Then once we've done that, once we've acknowledged ownership and once we have rejected guilt and shame, then we can begin to look through three really important things when it comes to money. First, earn ethically. We should all uh, be, be, we're all built for work. Men, women, we were built to add value to the world around us as part of the perfect created order. But how we work and how we earn should be done ethically. We should not spend our time in the gray areas of, uh, of morality, of law. We should not earn money in a way that dishonors God and then somehow think we can honor God with how we use the money. But we should work, and we should work hard, and we should add value. And some of you are really good at making money. And you should do that. You should make money. Go and do that. Earn it ethically and use it in a way that honors God. The world needs a few good examples of people who can handle wealth in a way that glorifies God. So go and do that. Spend wisely. For a lot of us, that begins with moving away from debt. Never anywhere in Scripture is debt uh, shown to be something that's God's best for us. The borrower is servant to the lender. Moving away from debt is a question, is a matter of devotion. It's a matter of aligning our devotions, aligning our priorities, so that we can be devoted first and only to God. We should do that as individuals, and as a church, we're trying to model that as well. We're moving uh, confidently and courageously towards being completely debt-free as a church, and we are very close. Live within your means. Don't live on more than you have. Don't borrow so that you can have a lifestyle that you want. Again, with the church as a community, we try to model the same thing. We don't, we don't do ministry. We don't, we don't move after the vision at a, at a pace that's, that, that gets ahead of God's provision. We live within the means of what God's provided. A kind of a basic starting point, if you've never done budget before, if you're wondering what does that look like uh, to, to, to spend wisely, think of the 10-10-80 rule. Give 10% away. Save 10% and live on 80%. They give 10% away, that's just, that, that's the tithe. That's been kind of throughout uh, biblical history and, and, and church history, kind of the, the starting point for generosity. 10% of, uh, of the first fruits of our labor, of earned income, given to the work of God in the world. Give 10% away, save 10%, live on 80%. And that, and that formula may change for you. It may be that you give more away. It may mean that you save more. It may mean uh, that, uh, that, that you live on less. Um, but that's a good starting point. So start there and then see how that fits. See what God says as you do that. Set wise limits for yourself. Practical thing, husbands and wives, make sure that you're on the same page. Make sure that you're on the same page, not just in what you spend, but where you're going as a family. What is it that you're trying to accomplish to honor God through the resources he's given you stewardship over? 
Not being on the same page financially can be incredibly divisive in a marriage. And likewise, when you're, when you're on the same page, when you're working together towards honoring God and the resources of the family, it can make a tremendous difference. Brandy and I really have never been as close as we, when we've been on the same page working together to make sure that we're honoring God with all he's given us stewardship over. For us, when we were in that financial pit, I sat down with Brandy uh, and I laid out all the dirty laundry. Here's everything that I've done wrong. Here's what it looks like. And, and, and I said to her, I think what we're looking at is probably a five-year journey just to get back to even. It was a really scary and humbling thing to say. But when we're willing to step out of the shame of that and willing to take action, it was incredible what God did. And the most practical, helpful thing that we did was we took Financial Peace University. We didn't just take the class. We worked it. We worked those steps all the way to the end. And what looked like a five-year journey ended up being just under a year. Next, give generously. If understanding ownership is key to getting the right perspective, then, then giving generously is the key to living it out. It begins with the tithe. It begins with giving 10%, but it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. And some of you, that 10%, some of you, what you can give is just a challenge. Maybe you're a student, and you're like, I earn peanuts, and I can give one peanut. You know what? Do that. Do that because God will use it and because God will grow faith in you. And if you think giving that one peanut is really hard, it won't get any easier when you're writing a check for $1,000 or $10,000. You don't magically get your heart in the right place. So begin now cultivating the disciplines of generosity. So as God enables you to give more, to invest more in his, in his kingdom work, you have the faith and the courage and the experience to do that. Ask God for a vision for what you could do with your resources, the resources he's given you stewardship over. Ask him to give you a picture of what you could invest in that would excite your heart, ignite your passions, and, and participate in what he's doing in this world. For Brandy and I, that falls into two things. First and primarily, we give to the work of the local church. Since Summit's our church home, that's here. We give our tithe, and when we're able, we give beyond that. And we give because we are so sold out for what God can do through the church. We believe 100% in what he can do through the church. We've been a lot of places, seen money used in a lot of ways, and money can change people's circumstances, but only God can transform people's lives. Only God can transform our souls, and we want to be a part of that kingdom work. So we participate in that. And then we want to take very practically Jesus' admonition in the New Testament, uh, really the whole biblical pattern of caring for the poor and vulnerable in the world. For us, we in particular want to care for orphaned and vulnerable children through sponsorship and other means. Those are the things that we, excite, we are excited to give to, and those are the things we invest heavily in. Ask God what that would be for you, and begin moving in that direction. Give so you have to trust God to provide. And give with joy. It can be a really fun thing. One of the most enjoyable roles I've had at Summit, and I've had a lot of roles, really almost every role at Summit over the years. The only thing I haven't been is the children's ministry person, because uh, apparently I terrify infants. Uh, but other than that, I've been in almost every role. And one of my favorite roles uh, was when I got to, to lead the team uh, that, that, uh, that gives away the 15% of, uh, of the church offering, the church budget every year. It's such a great thing. You get to give to work locally that changes people's lives. You heard about that a little bit with Samaritan Village. 
get to give to, to partnerships in Africa that, that are pulling people from grievous, unjust poverty and changing their life circumstances. You get to give some amazing things, and it's so enjoyable to be a part of that. Again, if understanding ownership is key to the right perspective, then, then engaging, exercising our giving muscles, giving generously is key in living it out. Jesus, in this beautiful text on worry, concludes with these words. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he is describing there isn't just the end result. He's not just saying you give to things that you care about. It's also the means. It's also recognizing that we care about the things that we give to. And if money potentially stands as an obstacle to devotion to God, it can also be a means of cultivating devotion to God. If we engage generosity, if we engage in God's work in this world, if we look at, at the reality of his ownership and then steward the resources, our resources accordingly, and put our treasure into the things that honor God, then we will see our hearts follow. Money is just a thing. It's a powerful thing, but it's just a thing. Money is not our enemy, but it's also not worthy of our devotion. It can be an amazing means, though, to cultivate devotion in God. Only God is worthy of our devotion. So what would it look like if our lives were built around that, built around devotion to God, cultivated in part through how we steward the resources he's given us? What if our hearts were really there? For where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your provision. We recognize that you're the creator of the universe. You're the, you're the author of every good thing in this world. You're our ultimate means of provision. You're the owner of our lives, our families, our stuff, our money, all of it. And as much as we're able to right now in this moment, we acknowledge your ownership and we acknowledge the responsibility of our stewardship and we ask that you give us the strength, even as we leave this place, to see our world differently as a result, to see our financial world differently, to see opportunity in the world around us, to engage and invest in the things that you care about. Let our hearts beat fast for the things that your heart beats for. Pray that you'll continue to be faithful, as we know you will be. Help us to not worry, but to trust in your provision, to trust in your goodness in our lives. And we pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen.